Garda, Mayon Kyolaros Noshunta, the National Concert Hall, be a hall of enchantment, an inspiration, and a lasting joy to all who come here. May success, unlimited, adorn its every endeavor. It now gives me very great pleasure to declare it open. It's William Square, Wednesday, May the 10th, 1865. Dear Martin, how are your mama and papa? I hope you are all well. Your Uncle George had a slight cold, but the recent weather has made him feel much better and he's his old self again, thank God. It was most fortunate indeed, as we have had a very busy time over the last few days with the opening of the exhibition. It was a great pity you could not be in Dublin, as, knowing your love of music, you could have joined us for such a wonderful concert yesterday afternoon. The whole city has been in a turmoil since Monday, when the Prince of Wales arrived at Kingstown. There was a magnificent ball at the mansion house, and many people did not get to their beds until a very late hour. However, we kept our strength for the official opening, and it was an exhausting but wonderful event. People were crowding into the exhibition buildings in Earlsford Terrace from an early hour. The company which has organised the exhibition has constructed wonderful halls in Coburg Gardens with a magnificent winter garden made of glass, which is 500 feet in length. We went to the magnificent concert hall, and by noon the balustrades of the galleries were crowded by ladies in their finest dresses. There were many false alarms, but just a few minutes after two o'clock the Prince of Wales arrived, looking a deal stouter than he did on his last visit, I fear. The lights flashed on the bayonets of the 78th Highlanders as they presented arms, and you could hardly hear yourself think with the cheers and the sound of the orchestra. Mr Gilbert Sanders, the chairman of the organising company, made a most impressive address to the assembled crowd, which must have numbered many thousands. The building in which we are now assembled owes its origins to a desire to supply a want which long existed in this city, that is, of a structure where the citizens might enjoy rational recreation combined with the elevating influences of the arts. A tract of about 17 acres in extent, formerly known as the Coburg Gardens, having passed into the possession of Mr. Benjamin Lee Guinness, that gentleman with his characteristic liberality in the promotion of all that can add to the comfort and happiness of his fellow citizens, placed the land at the disposal of the newly formed company at the price for which he had purchased it. The design of Mr. Alfred Jones was selected as the best calculated to meet the requirements of the company. The first stone was laid in March 1865. The programme of music was most appropriate to the occasion, and as performed by the band and choruses, of which there must have been over 1,000, under the baton of my favourite conductor, Mr Joseph Robinson, made an extremely fine effect. After the national anthem, we were treated to the old 100th, which was exceedingly well delivered. Oh, 
When the ceremonial key had been presented to the prince, Handel's coronation anthem was performed, followed by the opening chorus of Mendelssohn's Lobgesang and The Heavens Are Telling from the Creation. You would have loved all this music, I know, but the final piece was truly festive. The Hallelujah Chorus, I have never heard it so admirably given. At the climax, Mr. Robinson brought in the wonderful drum, which came specially from Mr. Distin of London. It is said to be the largest in the world, measuring eight feet across and made of buffalo skin. It added a tremendous clamor to the music. The event provided Dublin with an important asset, a concert hall, and long after the exhibition was closed, the hall continued to be an important musical venue. In the late 1870s, the Coburg Gardens complex had come into the possession of the government and were passed to the Royal University. Dr John Larcher remembered one concert held there very clearly indeed. It was after having a lesson with the Spazzato myself, I was introduced to Harty. I met him for the very first time. And um, Harty had got the prize for his Irish symphony at the Festival. Yes. And he wanted somebody to strike a most important note on the gong. And as Bonsato said, here's your man. Yes. So uh, we... Uh, said goodbye to Esposito and I went up to the Royal University Concert Hall um, and uh, Harty showed me the score. It was in the last movement. Now he said, this is most important. You must, I'll give you the cue and you must give a good hard blow. So uh, we tried all the different uh, ways of doing the blow and Harty was quite satisfied. Now he said, this is the breaking of a spell. Yes. So it's very important. So I arrived in due course for the concert and I may have played in other things, I've forgotten now really, but when this moment came uh, for the gong, I took flight and didn't strike. And the spell remained unbroken. And the spell <laughs> remained unbroken. Well, all I can say is I didn't say goodbye to Harty that evening. I slunk home like a man who's committed yes. murder. But the hall's days as a concert venue were numbered as it took on a new role in the academic life in Ireland. Michael O'Doherty, project architect from the Board of Works. Around uh, 1980, it came into the hands of the... Uh, National University. Prior to that, the Royal University moved in, adapted it as a university. Um, 1908, the National University was set up uh, and they adapted it even further. Uh, around 1914, they decided that they would build, rebuild the entire uh, block and in fact demolished half the front half of the, the buildings and then built a completely new block along the front. Uh, the idea was at that stage, I think, to um, eventually uh, demolish the remainder of the buildings and continue this extension around the hallway. But uh, I think the war interrupted at that stage and 
uh, it was stopped at that. So the facade we all know for so long in Larsa Terrace is, is a relatively modern addition to yeah. the original plan. Yeah, that was built in 1914. Uh, well, the Royal Tennis Courts, of course, are still there. Um, they're being used at present by the university, um, I think, and, and some, some studios. Uh, the archery grounds and uh, the old sculpture avenue still exists with the great waterfall at one end, uh, which relates to the, the sculpture hall within the building. Um, it was a very a very clever, very lovely link-up between the gardens and the exhibition buildings. The fortunes of the hall were to fall very low indeed over the next 40 years. Richie Ryan recalls the state of the building when he was a student. One critic uh, complained when we made our announcement that it was like putting a patch on, on, uh, on old clothing. But of course there are many uh, impressive dresses today which, which, are, which are quite old. When I was a university student uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, this building was so derelict that it wasn't used at all, even for examination purposes. It was used for the storage of turf, and pigeons were flying in and out of the building, and, and uh, students weren't allowed to go into it because it was regarded that the glass in the roof and that was dangerous. And I've also a recollection then that when it was restored, uh, partly restored for the purpose of dealing with the overcrowding of the university, that it was proposed to have a symphony concert in the hall, but again, that was abandoned because of some anxieties at, at that stage. So you could imagine the, the, the uh, anxiety which I, as minister, several years later had when, I, when the suggestion was made that, that maybe this hall could be converted to its, uh, its previous use. But we had a thorough examination made at that time and found, in fact, that it was, in fact, in fact feasible, and I think this has been proven in the event. If the hall was to lie dormant for three-quarters of a century, the other main theme in our story, that of its resident orchestra, was only beginning. To RN, the Dublin Broadcasting Station, was launched in January 1926. An orchestra was an early acquisition and was led by Terry O'Connor, who happily was among the audience at the state opening of the new hall. When a shortwave service was planned in 1946, the whole musical side was reorganised and two groups were set up, a Radio Erin Symphony Orchestra of 62 players and a light orchestra of 22. The Phoenix Hall became the new symphony's home. Although too small to be a proper concert hall, it made an excellent broadcasting studio. Here's part of a recording made there of Daniel McNulty's Divertimento. Well, I think in our own case it's uh, more complicated perhaps because of the history of orchestral music in Ireland. Um, it didn't grow in its recent times from uh, a background of professional concert giving. Uh, it grew really from broadcasting. Dr. Gerard Victory, Director of Music. And therefore, in a way, the cart is before the horse. In the old days when Ireland hadn't got really professional orchestras, there was a lot of concert giving. By the time broadcasting grew, and with it a full symphony orchestra, uh, we were then in the position that a broadcast studio, initially its home, had to expand, as it were, into 
a definitive concert hall where the public in large numbers could also hear it live. This made tentative steps in the early days of the 40s and 50s in the Phoenix Hall, which is really a good recording studio where the public were allowed in, and that unfortunately was taken over at a later stage by uh, the Department of Post and Telegraphs as a telephone exchange, and we had to move to various halls, Francis Xavier Hall and indeed others, none of which were, if you like, ideal concert halls. They became recording studios with larger and larger numbers of people uh, wanting to get in and uh, sometimes going to the Gaiety Theatre where we had uh, more prestigious concerts. And all of this diverse activity meant there was no central place with first-class facilities for both public and orchestra where they could work and develop not just broadcasting only, but uh, living the full life, as it were, and conveying it to continually changing uh, audiences live listening to them in the proper surroundings. Dr Olive Smith recalls how another important part of our story got underway. Well, it started from the formation of the Music Association of Ireland in 1948, when, as one of our objects, was to have a concert hall for Dublin. In 1951, I think it was early, the uh, Concert Hall Committee was formed and we worked for a bit and realised that a committee really couldn't do anything serious. And in 19, January 1952, Concert and Assembly Hall Limited was incorporated with um, A.P. Reynolds as chairman and uh, Edgar Deal from the Music Association and myself and there was Dr. Larchie and later on Sir Alfred Bight and Lord Moyne. And gradually it, it grew and expanded. And um, we spent from that for, oh, eight, seven or eight years hunting for a site without really getting one finally. But by this time it was obvious that we'd really got to do something and hoped that a site would turn up. And it was decided that we would run this big concert in the Theatre Royal, I expect you remember it, in January 1960. Now, this was re really due to Tiber Paul. He wanted to get something going. And so he arranged that we should do this. The orchestra very, very generously gave their services free. And we brought over um, Giaconda de Vita to play the, I think it was the Brahms violin concerto she played. And it, there was a great to-do about it. And we had a tremendous audience. And that was the sort of launching of the campaign. One of Concert and Assembly Hall Limited's most prestigious undertakings was a Beethoven festival at the Olympia Theatre which included all the symphonies and concertos.
Charles Lynch and part of the Beethoven Fourth Piano Concerto with the Radio Air and Symphony Orchestra conducted by Tibor Paul. It was the tragic death of John F. Kennedy which started the next chapter, as Mervyn Wall, then Secretary of the Arts Council, explains. After President Kennedy had been assassinated, the Arts Council were asked by the government to suggest a suitable memorial. Now, we understood at the time that the government had in mind something like a statue at the corner of College Street and Pierce Street on the site of the previous Crampton Memorial, which had been removed because it was in an unsafe state. Now, the Arts Council recommended the building of a concert hall, very much needed in Dublin, of course. I attended a meeting of a body called Concert and Assembly Hall Limited, who was, which was made up of very dedicated people who had managed to collect £2,000 for the purpose. The Arts Council calculated that a sum of about £350,000 would be required to build a suitable hall. We were very pleasantly surprised when the government agreed to the idea. Raymond McGrath, the chief architect of the Office of Public Works, was entrusted with the work, and it was decided that Beggar's Bush Barracks would be a suitable site. Four architects were assisting Raymond McGrath, and they spent many years working on the project. Plans were drawn up providing seating for 1,840 people, with additional accommodation, if necessary, for 200 more in the choir. The stage uh, was to provide for orchestras of up to 120 players. There was also to be a smaller hall in the complex to seat 464. Now, that was the position in 1966. It seemed that the dream had come true. Soon, everyone felt that the Radio Telefischer and Symphony Orchestra as it now was called, would have that long-awaited home. But the 60s ended, and the project was still on the drawing board. The quantity surveyors in 1969 put the cost of the complex at £2.6 million, and still only plans and prices were produced. In 1971, when Ireland won the Eurovision Song Contest, and when we were in search of a venue to stage the contest here in Dublin, uh, one of the areas uh, we thought of was the Great Hall in UCD. George Waters, RTE's Director General, then a senior engineer with the organisation. And at the time, um, I was responsible for finding this venue and I uh, wrote to Professor Michael Hogan, who was then Chairman of the Building Committee in UCD. And I asked him if the College would be prepared to give the hall to RTE for the song contest. The Building Committee uh, readily accepted our proposal uh, and they wrote to tell me so. We then costed the, the uh, necessary changes that would have to be made to make it suitable for the song contest because, of course, the Great Hall was acoustically very bad, very poor. And we discovered that it, the, the cost, if in, if in effect, ruled it out and we ended up, as you know, with the Gaiety Theatre. But after the song contest, I wrote to uh, Professor Hogan again and suggested that the Aula Maxima would make an ideal uh, home for the symphony orchestra and that when UCD were moving out of Earlsford Terrace that they might keep RTE in mind. The nettle was grasped by the then Minister for Finance, Richie Ryan. By the early 70s it was clear that, uh, or the mid-70s it was clear that the kind of money necessary to build that hall wasn't going to become available and therefore we took the decision that it was better to have a, a reasonable hall, a reasonable facility available which would enable the symphony orchestra which is a very good orchestra, to improve in reasonable conditions and to allow the public to enjoy 
the orchestra in such conditions. And that was the objective of the UCD Hall. We shouldn't call it that anymore, the Earthwood Terrace Hall, I suppose. And um, we're hopeful that this dream is going to be fulfilled now. Project architect Michael O'Doherty and his team worked closely with acoustics expert Dr Jordan from Copenhagen. We developed a, a design um, on paper and uh, he took this then um, and uh, built a model of it in his own studio in Denmark, a 1 to 10 scale model. And uh, he uh, carried out tests within the model with a sound source and the various microphones set around the proposed seating areas. And at that stage he was able to come back to us and say, well look, this is working and, and, and this requires it. this isn't working, this requires adjustment and so forth. And uh, we will have to have some uh, reflectors over the uh, choir area. Clarity isn't quite what it, uh, what it could be. So, right, we, we got back and, and made the changes then and went back to him. And um, he made the changes on the models, on the model, retested. And uh, then he was able to say, OK, that, that looks good. That's the hall itself is, is very close to the classical hall design, isn't it? Well, well, it is. In fact, that hall is, I, I believe, the forerunner of the European um, concert hall of that period. It was built ten years ahead of the Music Fahrensaal, Concertgebouw, most of the uh, the Leipzig, Gewandhaus. Um, so I, I feel this must be the forerunner um, of, of the very famous uh, European halls. It was in April of this year that a board of 12 directors was appointed to control the hall under the chairmanship of Fred O'Donovan. It's a wonderful board, I can safely say that. It's, it's, they're talented, they're interesting, and, and what we have done is on the board we form committees, an administration committee and an artistic committee, and the actual booking between now and Christmas was formulated by the artistic committee, and then our administrator, he negotiates fees, but uh, basically... I think it's a better idea to have the artistic side of it controlled by a number of people rather than any one individual. You don't get one taste too much. Exactly, then. because we all have personal tastes in music. Uh, I have a particular thing about young people. I feel that uh, the youth of, of, of the country, uh, I think we should help the youth orchestra. I think we should help the young singers, the up-and-coming soloists, because I feel that's where our future lies. I mean, the young 17, 18-year-olds, in 10 years' time, they'll be our stars. And I think they can only achieve that if people like uh, our board and our concert hall help them. The creation of the hall brings many new opportunities and hopes for Ireland's musicians and music lovers. Colman Pierce, the symphony orchestra's principal conductor. I've, In fact, I've been envious over the years of some of the halls that I've both listened in and worked in and uh, I, I think the orchestras that enjoy the good halls around Europe are so blessed I think for example of the Music for Ireland in Vienna the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam these are of course two of the absolute optimum halls in the world everybody loves the sound there it's warm, it's resonant, strings, sounds singing, then the Boston uh, Symphony Hall uh, is the best one that I heard in the States well, we're talking about top orchestras too here you know, but uh, it's like the chicken and the egg. One helps the other. Stage one of the National Concert Hall has been to bring the building into operation, and this has been achieved in a very short time indeed. Now attention is being focused on the future. Administrator Lindsay Armstrong lists some of the activities the hall has in store for us. 
I think there's a lot of very exciting things uh, coming up. I think you'll appreciate that it's not easy to get big names at very short notice. And we've been particularly fortunate in our first season to get some extremely eminent artists. Now, I have a very good board, and they have been a great help to me in getting some of the best-known artists in the world. For instance, we kick off with Rostropovich in, in October, 2nd and 3rd of October. Not only Rostropovich playing the cello, but his wife, Vishnuskaya, singing, and his daughter playing the piano. So that should be two memorable occasions, our very first celebrity recitals. Then we have um, the winner of the, we hope the winner of the Leeds piano competitions coming a couple of weeks later, certainly a prize winner. Uh, Menuhin is uh, appearing in November and in, on his programme is the famous unaccompanied Bach partita, the one with the chaconne, which uh, he, he is a splendid interpreter, interpreter of. And I'm particularly looking forward to that because I do think he plays that piece marvellously. Gilels will be in December, uh, an unusual programme, playing piano forehands with his daughter, which a uh, wonderful Schubert programme, because some of the great masterpieces are of forehand duets, so to speak, are, are by Schubert. We have Brendel, the marvellous Austrian pianist, in January. And uh, I hope a ch complete change of um, uh, orientation, if I can put it like that, Ravi Shankar in um, March of next year. I think Shankar's a great artist of his kind, and uh, that will be a complete contrast to the kind of Western classical music we'll be getting, the, one of the finest ex exponents of Indian classical music and that. A uh, very important um, event is the St. Matthew Passion that we're promoting on Palm Sunday, with a completely all-Irish cast, so to speak, Irish conductors, soloists, choirs. And uh, I think that will be a major musical event. The first work to be performed in the New Hall was a specially commissioned choral composition by Shorsha Bartley, his Symphony No. 3, entitled Kjol. On the one hand, you're writing a work for what is, in fact, a great occasion. There's no point putting it to it, but just has to say that. And it's a great opportunity. On the other hand, one also has to write a work which is artistically viable. I don't really care myself for writing works that would be purely occasional in the sense that we write for the occasion and that's it. So it was a matter of trying to find something that would fit both uh, possibilities. And so, for instance, uh, I tried to think of what might be the most basic musical statement that could be made, and that that would fit in some way with a work, the theme of which is, is music itself, which I thought was suitable for a concert hall opening. And uh, so I have the work starting and indeed ending, with a long drawn out C major chord as being a sort of symbolic of the most basic possible <laughs> musical statement one could make. Um, other than that, one also had to think how one would approach the text because this is vital. And uh, while the text, of course, is not by myself, it's by Brendan Pinelli, who's done a superb job on it, as one would expect. Um, nonetheless, we discussed this from the very beginning. And uh, I felt that my original idea was to have references to kjol, music in Irish, and to take them as a starting point, perhaps working from proverbs. But as I thought about it, and as we both discussed this, we gradually came more around to a slightly looser view than that and took uh, references to music from poetry, from Irish poetry, from, from proverbs indeed, or from particular sayings, and 
It's curious, when you put these all together, you suddenly realise that the word kyol in Irish means a thousand different things. You know, you can use it metaphorically. Mahyolhu, you are my music. Or um, directly, or as say in Neil Farron, Neil Tiasagum, Neil Fiant and not kyol, like neither land nor house wine nor music. Or uh, sometimes, in the case of two of the titles, they are in fact... Um, Invented, so to speak, by ourselves. Uh, the, for instance, the the one that ends the first movement on Kjol August Neue, music and shame, and the last one Kjol and Kjol, the music of music. of Liche Dochis with Bernadette Grievy. Kjo was received with rapturous applause at the state opening and the concert was broadcast not only throughout Ireland on television and radio but was also relayed to a number of overseas countries including Russia. A very distinguished audience was present and these are just some of their comments. Here's Alpha O'Reilly and Maura Larsen. They have managed to retain much of the in eight quality of the original building and yet created a wonderful cool sense of space and splendor but just now I was very interested to hear fascinated to hear that what I thought were 13 elegant flying saucer type lighting panels uh, in the roof which I thought we didn't have turned on tonight because of being uh, televised are in fact acoustic panels and I think it's a lovely bit of design that the acoustic panels become such a lovely feature. Normally they're a feature, but not a beautiful one. And they're, they're, they're like old green glass, and, and they're lovely, and I think people will be watching them like mad. Or your family has a close relationship with music, and indeed your father was very much involved and actually played here many years ago, as he told us in a famous interview some years ago. Is this an exciting night for you? It's a very exciting night, and I, I thinking of him a lot, he would have been so thrilled with the whole thing. It's such a beautiful hall, they've done a wonderful job on it, and of course he would have remembered concerts here when it was, what was it called then? The, the, Royal, the, the Royal University then? Yes, I think he would have been very thrilled, and he would have been particularly thrilled with his pupil, Georgia Bodley's splendid piece. Well, I found it more than exciting, actually. I think it was absolutely marvellous. And I was particularly impressed with the Georgia Bodley. It was really invigorating. 
as, some, as somebody who's been had problems in finding venues and looking for places to perform music in over the years, is this going to make a big difference to musical Dublin? Oh, I think so. It's got all the elegance that you want, and it's a fine hall, and I think the acoustics seem to be very good indeed. It's just what we want. It may be a little bit small from audience size, but I think it's very good. And that was Ronald Twelve Trees, and here's Siobhan McKenna. Oh, it's one of the great evenings in the history of Dublin, isn't it, really? When I came up from Galway years ago, one would go to the old capital for um, concerts and things like that. But tonight really is a triumph, and everyone was so wonderful and such a beautiful building. I, I, I'm really very moved. I, I think it's just a great, great evening, and I would like to say congratulations to everyone concerned. And I loved the new piece, you know, of music. It was wonderfully exciting. Great evening. Not alone was the, the coal or the music uh, extremely satisfying, but the whole occasion... Uh, I think it's a wonderful night for music in Dublin. I think it's a wonderful night for music in Ireland. I think it'll lift the whole scene for music in this country. As a regular amateur player yourself, will this be a very important Philip for the whole amateur scene as well? Oh, I think so. And I mean, I hope as a, as an, as a regular amateur player that um, amateurs like myself, uh, provided the standard is professional uh, enough, that uh, we get an opportunity to go out on that stage and, and to... Uh, give of our music in that magnificent acoustic. That's Shay Cleary, and this is Mrs. Rita Childers. Very, very exciting for me, particularly as it seemed to be uh, my husband's dream come true, and the only vacant seat in the balcony was beside me, and I felt he was there because everyone kept saying how wonderful that it was since way back when he was Minister of Post and Telegraphs, when Symphony Orchestra was being formed in 1952 to 55 or 6, this was his dream, that when the Symphony Orchestra was formed, that there would be a concert hall for them to play in. And it went as far back as that. And I felt he was beside me tonight and greatly thrilled. This is the, a dream come true for many of us. We never thought we would see it in our lifetime, that it was a concert hall. And now we'll be able to invite international artists and musicians to come here and play in a properly uh, equipped concert hall and not a, a, a makeshift uh, hall as in the old days. Comments there by Dermot Doolan. And here's Dame Ruth King. Nobody could fail to be happy with an event like tonight, the opening of a great concert hall, which the people of Ireland and this capital city really deserve. It is beautiful to be in. The whole ambiance of the place is lovely, it's restful, it's artistic. It makes the atmosphere right for whatever takes part in the hall. And tonight to have an Irish composer with an original piece, a piece of a kind that one wouldn't hear anywhere else but in Ireland, and then to hear one of the greatest works of all time and linking us with Europe and a huge, a, a huge performance. And to do it in a new hall before anybody's really used to the sound of the acoustics was a great achievement. I also asked Pat O'Kelly, who's a much-travelled music critic and chairman of the Music Association, for his reactions. I think they can only be favourable when one considers what we have endured for a long time in Dublin, the Gaiety Theatre, which was 
not acoustically particularly good, but a very friendly place to sit in. Uh, we endured Francis Xavier Hall. I think familiarity made us like it. Uh, I, d I don't think it had a, a very great acoustic uh, sound. So going to the new hall and hearing really the RTSO for the first time in Dublin, uh, the experience was quite enlightening. At the acoustic test, I found I couldn't hear the lower strings particularly well. I found they were being swamped uh, a lot of the time. Uh, I was sitting in the stalls. The next night I was invited along to hear the orchestra again with the choir and I sat upstairs and found the sound to be somewhat improved but there again the lower strings weren't coming through. And I'm just I'm a little disappointed to find on Wednesday at the opening that this problem does seem to exist. Uh, now whether that can be overcome I don't know. Maybe it's the orchestra themselves haven't actually found their own positions insofar as maybe they're not used to hearing themselves in these surroundings yet. This is a problem we'll take time I'm sure to sort out so, where do we head from here? Because, of course, this is only the beginning of the hall, not the end of the whole adventure. Here's Lindsay Armstrong. Every night of the week, something good going on at the National Concert Hall. And maybe matinees as well. Gerard Victory. My main ambition uh, would be, I think, to see it grow uh, in, the, in further servicing and further facilities. It will have very good practical uh, servicing facilities and for the public. Uh, I think that's all very well known. But what I'd like to see is that it becomes a cultural centre. Olive Smith. I now feel I can really lay down my pen and all the rest of it and leave it. And uh, another intriguing thing about it is that after all these years that I slaved at it, now the manager of the concert hall <laughs> is my son-in-law and he, I think, is going to find it pretty tough going to begin with. And George Waters. I think it's going to be a great morale boost for the orchestra and indeed for RTE music department as a whole. And not before its time, I should say. Mm -hmm.